Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Uh, we'll move around the room and say our names, and then we'll hear from our speaker. Um, my name is Grisha. I'm David. My name is Rich. Tucker. Don. My name is Mark. I'm Carl. My name is Michael. I'm Greg. My name is Christian. My name is Henry. I'm Brad. Mariano. Tony. Ricardo. And Pat. Peter. <coughs> Stephen. I'm Hal. I'm Richard. Bob. <coughs> Jay. My name is Paul. Uh, my name is Harley. Jim. Jeff. My name is Jerry. I'm David. Tom Water. John. My name is Matthew. Uh, my name is Clark. Welcome everyone. Um, <coughs> today, um, James Barris has been uh, is speaking today, and James Barris has been a meditation teacher since 1978. He is the creator and teacher of the Awakening Joy Course since 2003. He leads retreats, workshops, and classes in the U.S. and abroad. He is a co-founding teacher of Spirit Rock Meditation Center and co-author of Awakening Joy, the book based on the course with Shoshana Alexander. He is a guiding teacher for One Earth, One Earth Sangha, a website devoted to expressing a Buddhist response to climate change. So, thank you. That's me. <laughs> Well, first, I uh, want to say um, how happy I am to be here with you and sit with you. Uh, it's been quite a while since I've been here, um, but I, uh, I do remember um, being here before and enjoying it. Um, and uh, I was wondering what to talk about, uh, and I had, I was just speaking before with... Um, couple of people. I had a couple of possibilities um, talking about the judging mind and some other things, but uh, uh, with a little bit of encouragement, um, I think I'll, uh, I'm landing on sharing about awakening joy and about this um, uh, perspective or approach to practice as a really a path of well-being and happiness. Uh, I know some people have either done the joy course or said that they read the book. A couple of people mentioned that. How many people are familiar in some way with it? Okay, so it's just a few. You can be agents of the teachings after, uh, after I share. And, uh, and also to let you know, oh, let's see, I have two books I happen to have in my car that are out there. And uh, I do this course uh, every year from um, beginning of February, if people do it online, end of January, live in Berkeley, uh, through um, the middle of June. Uh, and I'll, I'll share with you a bit how, I, uh, how that came about and uh, some of the basic principles of the course, hopefully, of, of the, this approach. Hopefully it'll be a useful perspective to keep within your own Dharma practice. Um, when I first got turned on to the practice, this was in uh, 1974 at Naropa Institute. It was the first year at Naropa. Uh, that's where I met uh, Joseph Goldstein. Um, Jack Cornfield was also there that year. They'd both just come back from Asia. Uh, and it was like a, a Buddhist summer camp, um, spiritual summer camp. Uh, Ram Dass was there. That's what 
brought me there because Be Here Now was a book that changed my life. And um, I asked Ram Das at the beginning, well, what about meditation? I've been doing TM for a few years uh, before that. And he said, go check this guy Goldstein out. He's pretty good. <laughs> and when I first heard the teachings from Joseph, uh, it was like coming home, as perhaps everybody here has their own story about when it clicked and said, oh my goodness, I think I found something that, that really rings true for me. And I had been in a lot of internal suffering, although my life looked okay on the outside, but um, I didn't like myself very much. Uh, I was very insecure and shy. And Joseph was saying, um, it's possible to not be run by your neurotic thoughts that had never crossed my mind as a possibility before. And, uh, and I believed him, and I said, I'm going for it. And sometimes, uh, if you've had a lot of suffering, you're that much more motivated. And I was very motivated. I did a lot of retreats uh, for the next uh, 10 years. Really, my life outside, I was a school teacher uh, for most of that time, fifth and sixth grade in New York. It was, my life outside was just kind of uh, supporting me in doing the internal work of of going on retreats. And I had what was uh, what is called a, a long honeymoon period where I just wanted to tell everybody, <laughs> you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. And my friends would kind of slink away from me and give me a little bit of space. Uh, it took me a while to learn to have a little bit softer sell, um, but I did. But I was just so grateful for the teachings because they're powerful and transformative. Somewhere along the line, I became very serious about my practice. Dead serious <laughs> about my practice. And the emphasis on the word dead. As can happen. Anybody ever find that they've gotten a bit too serious about their practice. It can happen. And I'll share with you a, a quote I love that uh, points to the fact that this is not unique to me. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, uh, the, the most senior Western monk in Theravadan Buddhism. He was the major uh, Dharma heir of Ajahn Chah and Jack's kind of elder brother uh, when, when Jack first became a, a monk. He says, sometimes in Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. <laughs> or if you see a beautiful person, you should contemplate them as a rotting corpse. <laughs> this has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy. So I was in this space where I lost my joy for quite some time, even though I was a, a teacher of, um, of the meditation. And it was subtle, but it was there. Um, 
somehow it wasn't okay for me to have my natural celebration and gratitude for life, um, which is just a part of my temperament. Uh, that was why I was so drawn to um, to be here now and Ramdas and Neem Karoli Baba, who was a, a major uh, awakening of my heart. He's Ramdas's guru and be here now, uh, Maharaji, as he's called. So when I I lost my joy, somehow I felt it wasn't it wasn't okay to let my natural love of life be expressed. And it's, it's not a, a, there are reasons for that kind of distortion. And I'll share with you a couple, of, a couple of teachings where one can see how easy it is to get distorted in this way. One is the, um, the concept of samvega. Anyone know that word, samvega? S-A-M-V-E-G-A, Samvega. And this is a very valued understanding. And this is the definition of Samvega. This is from uh, uh, Tanasaram Bhikkhu. Samvega, the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes from realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Fun, (laughs) You hear that and say, oh my goodness, let's get out of here as fast as we can. This is a very important and rich understanding that one can come to in practice, but it can easily be misunderstood. And the key words in that definition <clears throat> comes with, the realize, with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. And as it's normally lived, we get all kinds of messages about what real happiness is. Here's one message. And this is um, uh, an ad that somebody gave me many years ago just to see what we're up against. This is called the gold shivers. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy. Here's the ad. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. Two part. You can see her while I share the rest. What is the real substance of of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. (laughs) Among life's pleasures count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. (laughs) It's brilliant, isn't it? You might not even care for jewelry, but you see that and say, I'd like some of that too. (laughs) Or you might say, I'm a Bay Area conscious critical thinker. You can't put that over me. The thing is, it works. It works. That's why... Coca-Cola will pay millions of dollars for 30 seconds of your attention so you can see, ah, happiness in a bottle. Yeah. They're not saying, oh, we're going to turn people on to this new drink that they've never heard before. It's just getting that in your brain. Oh, happiness, Coke. And so all kinds of things get in there from... Supermodels who never think that they're thin enough, who starve themselves with being anorexic or bulimic, to 
uh, men who, who get the message that they're supposed to be tough and strong or successful and rich, even though there's a part of us that says, that's just madmen, it gets in there. And so there's deep kind of conditioning. The Buddha talked about it 2,500 years ago, even before it was brought to a science of how to manipulate the mind. So the meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. Another teaching that I'll share with you again to see how it can get distorted is, um, is the concept of nibida, nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A. Again, a very important um, realization, nibida. This is how it's it was traditionally translated uh, in old Victorian English when uh, the Pali Canon was translated into English many years ago. Nibida, and it's in relationship to this body-mind process called the aggregates, the five aggregates, which is another way of saying our body and mind. Nibida, the, one should abide in the utter disgust of the aggregates. Or another translation, he should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates. My God, I'm just trying to not wince when I look in the mirror. That's what it was like for me. (laughs) And they're saying, oh, supposed to cultivate utter disgust and revulsion for this body and this mind. Gosh, (laughs) what is that about? But really, this very important concept, words have tremendous power. And a more accurate understanding of the word nibida is disenchantment. One should have disenchantment with regard to this body and this mind that is not be enchanted so much that you are caught in grasping and thinking, that's going to make me happy. Wow, I've got to have that. And when you can experience nibida, you see it's just a package. It can be a beautiful package, as Sumedho talks about, to appreciate the aesthetics of it, but to not be so enchanted that you're lost. And nibida, disenchantment, is breaking the spell of that enchantment. And you know, I'm sure all of us know, when you go beyond the package, particularly around other people or around ourselves, the real beauty lies in who's in there besides the package. You know, some people have the karma of being quite beautiful to look at, which can be heavy karma in itself. Believe me, I've been with many beautiful, attractive people that it's very heavy karma or difficult, challenging, as we, you know, the Me Too movement is the perfect example of of that. Uh, And some people aren't, but to not be so caught up in the package, so nibida. But you hear that and you think, oh, I'm supposed to have disgust for this body. And so I got very um, uh, distorted, not conceptually I knew better, but inside, in a deep cellular way, it's not okay to enjoy life or to appreciate the good or the beautiful. So at some point, I was fortunate enough, actually, uh, um, and and Jeff is here, uh, we were both in Lucknow together in 1990 and shared uh, uh, teachings from a wonderful teacher named Punjaji, or Papaji, uh, and he helped me see through this as well. Um, and there were a few other things that kind of brought me back and woke me up to the fact that it's okay to love life. 
And fortunately, instead of turning my back on Buddhism, what I did was take a deeper look and see, well, what did the Buddha actually say about happiness and well-being? Sometimes it's hard to, to cut through all the talk about dukkha, about suffering, the Four Noble Truths. There's suffering in life. There's a cause of suffering. There's an end to suffering. And there's a path leading to the end to suffering. That's a lot of suffering, or focus on suffering anyway. And you can forget that this is about happiness. The Buddha was called the happy one. And the Dalai Lama, in, uh, who's such a beautiful embodiment of this, he wrote a book, probably many of you are familiar with, called The Art of Happiness. He also wrote, wrote a book with Desmond Tutu on uh, the Book of Joy. But The Art of Happiness starts out with this line. The purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. Now, I find that such a powerful line. The purpose of life is to be happy. Just notice how that lands if you really take it in. Because when we can find true happiness our own true well-being, which is different from the gold shivers, then all of the beautiful qualities that we've been gifted with in life naturally shine through. And we experience it from the inside and everybody gets the goodies on the outside. So I took a look and I said, okay, well, what did the Buddha actually say about happiness? Where can it be found? How can it be genuinely cultivated? And I looked at the teachings and there were three particular teachings in the Pali Canon, which is the, the, uh, the teachings that have come down, particularly in Theravadan Buddhism that are preserved. Um, that struck me in a very profound way. One teaching is pointing to where real happiness lies, and it's the teaching on wise effort. There are four, in technically in the, in the definition of wise effort, there are four components of wise effort. Two having to do with what are called unwholesome states, or akusala, states of suffering, and two having to do with kusala, states of happiness, of well-being, wholesome states. And the two, the unwholesome, un akusala, states like greed, hatred, delusion, uh, envy, um, uh, uh, rage, um, um, Confusion, lots of all of those states that probably you're somewhat familiar with. And he says, guard against those states arising. If you can, don't put yourself in temptations or harm's way. When they do arise, which are naturally just part of being human, learn how to overcome them so they don't overwhelm you. And then the wholesome states, states like uh, love, kindness, wisdom, uh, compassion, generosity, patience, equanimity, peace. He says, cultivate those states. Those are really important, valuable states that create the groundwork, the, the, the ground for awakening to arise. And when there's a wholesome state that is here, to maintain and increase that wholesome state, he says, is a good thing. Now, you might have the thought, well, hold on a moment. Doesn't that sound like attachment? Have you had that thought? Let <laughs> me track you. And here's the, here's the tricky part. When you have a wholesome state... 
if you think that increasing the wholesome state can happen by holding on to it, you're gravely mistaken. Because as soon as you get attached to that wholesome state, bring it on. I want more. How do I keep it here? It's just turned into an unwholesome state in your mind. Because unwholesome states are states of contraction, and wholesome states are states of expansion. So this is the first thing, to see where real happiness lies. And I'll I'll just uh, invite you for a moment, go inside and think of what brings you joy. To be anything, the simplest little thing or the big things, what brings you joy? And how does it feel when you're experiencing it? Right now, as you recall, how does it feel inside, even just to remember it? Okay, you can open your eyes. First, a few comments on what brings you joy. We'll just take some comments quickly, very briefly. Yes? Chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else? My dog. Your dog. So many people there. Pet. Yes. Anything else? Yes. Being aware of my breath. Say again? Being aware of my breath when I'm aware that I'm breathing. Breathing. Uh, breathing. Aware of breath. Yeah. Yeah. I I was thinking first the uh, pleasure in helping others, but also I'm really enjoying this talk. (laughs) (laughs) Hearing the Dharma talk, hearing the Dharma, or helping others. Yeah. Uh, Dancing. Dancing, sure. So many, one, one more. Nature. Nature, sure. So many, that, those are often the, the, the common uh, things, some kind of creative juice. Being with children, seeing, uh, uh, seeing, um, seeing a beautiful sunset, whatever. Nobody said the jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not in things, it's in... Um, it's in the awareness of connection and in, uh, um, uh, in a state that opens your heart. And now, just go back again, the thing that you just remembered, and notice when you think about it, remember the last time you were experiencing it, or even right now, uh, what's the feeling inside? If you were going to describe that, that feeling the opposite okay. of making a fist. <laughs> okay, so opening. Yes. What else? It, somebody. Warmth. Warmth. There, there's many words. I'm not looking for the right answer. What, what, how, what else? How would you describe it for you? Total engagement. Total engagement. Yes. What else? Anything else? Joy. Joy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Physiologically, though, these are all qualities of expansion so different than anger, frustration, rage, which are part of being human. I'm not saying those are bad things, but those are states that are unpleasant, that are suffering and lead to more suffering. These other states are states of well-being that, um, that are expansive. So he says to cultivate these states, loving kindness, mindfulness, compassion practices, joy, cultivate them, and when they're here, to maintain and increase them, and increase them. So now, how to maintain and increase them without getting attached? And very simply, it's to put your attention on actually experiencing them. So rather than knowing, feeling pretty good right now, going one step further and using mindfulness and letting yourself really get in touch with it and know, oh, this is what it feels like to feel good. 
Just that simple little turning your awareness to that wholesome state deepens it because that's one of the properties of mindfulness. That's why mindfulness of all the mental factors, there are 52 mental factors in Buddhist psychology. It's like the deck you're dealt. (laughs) Not everybody seems to have a full deck, but that's that's another story. Uh, But of all of those 52 factors, one factor, mindfulness, has the unique property of weakening the unwholesome states and strengthening the wholesome states. Particularly when there's a wholesome state and you bring your attention to it, it amplifies it, it deepens it. And neuroscientifically, there's a reason why it is deepening your neural pathways. And so there's, in the, the Buddha talks about this in the second teaching that I found. How am I doing? Ooh. Uh, we'll see whatever we get to Uh, the the second teaching is about this he said there's a gladness that's connected with the wholesome state and he gives the example in this one discourse uh, where he says in the middle of a generous act one he recommends one think to yourself I'm being generous now He says, this is a good thing. Now, he's not saying, check it out. (laughs) Everybody see what a generous guy I am. He's saying, notice how good it feels for generosity to move through me. And he says in this discourse, that gladness connected with the wholesome state, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. So, for instance, you're having a bummer of a day and then all of a sudden you see kids playing or or somebody says, uh, hi, oh, it's so good to see you. At a moment you feel of gladness and it dissipates all the, everything else going on before that. He also says that gladness uh, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the Dhamma, in the truth. One gladdens the heart. So he says, pay attention to the wholesome state when it arises. And there's on a neuroscience level, in recent years, neuroscience has corroborated all of these teachings when you pay attention to that wholesome state, you deepen it. As my good friend Rick, Rick Hansen, he's been here, hasn't he? Didn't he? Sometimes. Yes. No? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, and he's a dear friend. Um, he's, he used to come a lot to the Joy Course, and we're, 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 we're good, good friends. And he, uh, he's written a book, written a few books, Hardwiring Happiness, Buddha's Brain, about the neuroscience behind the Buddhist teachings. And he gives a formula. You can take this with you. He says, when you're feeling a wholesome state, pay attention to it for 15 seconds. You don't have to make a big show of it. Just kind of, just go and say, hmm, well, this is what it feels like. I'm feeling pretty good. And then his, this is his recommendation. If you do that six times in a day, I know that's 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it. Do that six times in a day over the course of a two-week period, you will notice a shift in your general demeanor. One, because you're deepening your your, uh, neural pathways and also because you're starting to be on the lookout for what's good, which takes some practice because generally we are more geared up, wired up to look for what's wrong. We have this almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brain called the amygdala that scans the horizon for what's wrong. And it's particularly activated under stress. We tend to see the negative. It takes practice to look for the positive. 
Some people are naturally that way, but for many of us, we more tend to be scanning for the dangers. This is sometimes uh, known as a confirmation bias, where you will find what you look for. If you're looking for how everybody is going to disappoint you, you will get a lot of evidence to corroborate that, but your brain will miss all the times that that's not so, or tends to. If you look for the goodness in people, you will not only help bring it out, which has been shown to be so, when you're around somebody who sees your goodness, you feel it just calls it out of you. But the more you look for it, the more you will find it, because your brain has this confirmation bias to confirm what your hypothesis is. is. Oh, there's good inside there. And if you don't look for that, if you look for how everybody is a jerk and watch out, then you'll find likely miss all the other times that doesn't ring true. Uh, the, I'm just thinking now. Okay. I'm just thinking of uh, this line by Albert Einstein. He says, uh, perhaps the most important question a human being can ask is, is the universe friendly or not? Mm -hmm. Because if we have the confirmation bias that the universe is not friendly, it's dangerous, and of course, you've got to be on the lookout. You don't want to be pie in the sky. Yeah, there's danger out there. But if you see underneath it, it's just people that are confused or ignorant, but that life wants to support us when we can open to it. It changes our perspective on things. And you probably notice, know people who tend to help you feel relaxed because they, they see your goodness. And that's what they're creating in that field. Of course, again, you don't want to be naive, but to, to really go through life that way uh, is much more enriching. Okay, so that the second principle. First one, notice where happiness lies. Second one, be aware of the gladness when you're feeling that moment of uplift connected with the wholesome. And as I say in the joy course, many people have so told me over time, the one thing that they remember from doing it is the words, don't miss it. <laughs> don't miss it. Don't go through life with blinders on. You know, the, there's a famous expression, trust in Allah and tie your camel to the post. But you don't want to be really naive. But don't miss all the good in life. And as the Buddha suggests, maintain and increase those wholesome states because they help you have a container for all the hard stuff. And then the third principle that the Buddha says that's confirmed in, in uh, neuroscience he says in, in another discourse, he says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? It's all about habits of mind. And so if your confirmation bias is to see what's wrong, that will be the inclination of your mind. In modern neuroscience, there's an axiom that expresses this very <clears throat> succinctly. Neurons that fire together, wire together. <laughs> and so it's all about practicing wiring the goodness and noticing what's good while we are tuning into taking care of what needs to be taken care of. So those are the three principles and what I... What I then did, once I saw those and they made sense to me, was pick out ten wholesome states from the teachings that 
he suggested to cultivate. And when you're cultivating them, when you're experiencing them, don't miss it. And over the course of time, as you do that, you naturally start to incline your mind towards the good in life. And so uh, it, I, it, it, we're almost out of time. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll just do one and explain it, but I'll give you the, the general uh, broad brushstrokes. So the 10 wholesome states that I saw can really be cultivated, easily cultivated, are uh, or importantly cultivated. The first is the intention to be happy. Maybe I'll say a little bit about that. Intending is the basis of all karma, as the Buddha said. Intending, I tell you, is karma through body, speech, and mind. And it's the second link in the Eightfold Path. Intention to be happy is one that doesn't come quite as naturally to many people. We all want to be happy. Does anybody here not want to be happy? <laughs> and if you're somebody who says, well, I like being grumpy, that's just your way of being happy. <laughs> Whatever turns you on. But if, if you look, you'll see that everything that you do comes from a place inside that says, this will make me feel a little bit better, or this hopefully will make me feel not as bad. Even if it's misguided, there's a place that is coming from you, the intention for greater well-being. Often it's misguided, but to get in touch with where real happiness lies and to activate that real wholesome place that's rooting for your happiness, that's the key. We all want to be happy, but often we we postpone it or think in other in in not as direct terms as I want to be happy. Oh, when I find the right partner, then I'll be happy. When I become successful in whatever it is or make enough money, then I'll be happy. When I retire, then I'll be happy. But oh, I want to be doing what I can for well-being right in this moment, that takes a little bit of practice. And when I call joy, you know, I call this awakening joy, don't let the word joy trip you up. Sometimes people think, joy, oh my God, I'll take not being miserable. <laughs> and uh, what I'm calling joy is really well-being. And there are, there's a whole flavor, spectrum of well-being from uh, delight and exuberance to um, uh, contentment to peace to uh, equanimity. So it's not that it's supposed to look any one way. All of these states are these states of openness, kusala. And any flavor of that is fine. And in fact, sometimes when people think, you know, say, I'm trying really hard to be joyful, I say, that's not going to work. Don't try hard to be joyful. Start by noticing when you're not miserable. Oh, I'm not miserable. Oh, that's okay. So the intention, however, to say, I really want well-being, and putting that at the forefront is the is the key decision that everything else follows. Then there is mindfulness itself, which is a, uh, the, as I said, weakens the unwholesome state and strengthens the wholesome states. It's the direct way, as the Buddha said, to overcome sorrow, lamentation, and grief, despair, and realize the highest happiness, mindfulness. The third is gratitude, a very direct way to open the heart. The fourth is learning how to open up to the hard stuff. It's an essential piece. If you're just saying, oh, 
I'm in a feel-good program. Uh, I, I say, no, this is a feel-everything program. Um, you've got to learn how to use the sorrows and the sadnesses as part of your understanding and growing that you can be with everything. And this is a basic premise of what the Buddha spoke of where he said that suffering can lead to faith, can lead to gladness, joy, peace, and enlightenment. How many people have been motivated by their suffering to look for a deeper meaning in life and led them on their spiritual path? Take a look around. That's how it works. So to really see suffering in a different context rather than if I were running the universe, I'd do a much better job than this, and this is a terrible mistake to, okay, this is what I've been given. How can I use it to deepen my, my heart and my compassion and open up to the hard stuff? So that's the fourth step. The fifth is integrity, what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness, sila, the foundation for well-being. The sixth is the joy of letting go on many, many levels, uh, whether it's about stuff or about busyness in your life or about the ideas that we have that limit us or the control that we never had in the first place. Letting go is the key, he said, to true freedom. The seventh, I'll give you a quick tour of the joy course couple of minutes, is learning to love ourselves, which is so crucial, key in this whole process. Because until we do, we're looking for confirmation from everyone outside. And as we see all the goodness inside, it shines through. The eighth is our connection with others, loving kindness, metta, Forgiveness, playfulness, mudita, sympathetic joy, that joy of connection. The ninth is compassion, compassionate action to express our caring in the world. And the tenth I call the joy of simply being, where you're not trying to cultivate anything. It's already here, just resting in the moment. So, hmm. maybe I should just stop here if there's any comments or questions. I'll stick around for a while. There are practices that I thought I'd get to, but, uh, um, but and if there aren't questions, I'll, I'll do one or two. One. <laughs> but actually, and before I do, I just want to show you your true nature. Uh, I have, since I have this here, we can forget who we really are. And I want to remind you, this is a picture of a, of a baby, Chloe Thomas from Melbourne, Australia. And this is who you were coming into this world. Beautiful. <laughs> Innocent, loving life. And it's in there. You might say, that was a long time ago. I, I, I don't know. About it's in there. That's who you are. And so to cultivate, it's all about practice. You know, you might hear, okay, I got the 10 steps now. I got it. It's whether or not you ever do the joy course. It's about practicing. That's what the Buddha talked about, cultivating all of those beautiful states so that you can access the Buddha inside that's in there all along. That's why when you take refuge in the Buddha, it's not just to that inspiring being that lived so many years ago, but the Buddha right inside of you. This is what your hope that you're bringing out not just for yourself, but for everyone in your life. So maybe I'll just stop here and see any comments, questions. Yeah. Um, 
Josh, I have the joy class at least once. I was trying to remember if I took it a second time. Mm. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> I've seen about the 10 steps. And are the 10 steps, uh, the 10 fat, 10 feet, are they um, things sort of like the eightfold path where it's important to do all of them? Or is it more like sort of Joseph's idea in the Dharma that there are <coughs> many skillful ways? There, it, it's a hologram. So anywhere that you enter, as long as you're cultivating well-being, the, the key one is intention. Everything follows from that. <clears throat> but any one, as you, uh, I go through it over a five-month period. Every two weeks, we go to another. Uh, we we then um, collectively focus on another uh, step, but. If, if you're back on the, uh, the step from a month before, whatever one is opening your heart, it will affect everyone else, everything else. So it's just a matter of keeping the practice of inclining your mind towards well-being. That's the key. Yeah? Maybe this is my monkey mind working, but as far as intention, I get its importance... If, if you're just feeling like, I'm feeling really miserable, I would like this to end, is that, I mean, for some reason that seems like, oh, that's not, you know, a right intention or a mm. intention. No, it being uh, like this to end, what's the this? Is it? Feeling miserable. Oh, okay. I'd like to, okay, I didn't know there's a lot of different ways you can put in this. Um, <laughs> of course you'd like your misery to end. But the more frustrated you are by its presence, the more you're adding to it. So a key, and this is that fourth step of opening up to the difficult, is learning to hold your misery in a very kind, compassionate way. So that you're not letting your thoughts run you over, and you're just... Like a mother with a child holding, if you had a good mother or whatever, <laughs> uh, just holding with, with kindness, not trying to fix anything, that in itself creates the space for yourself to be held. And then there's learning to make friends with that part of you as there's this line from Robert Bly who says, every part of ourselves that we do not learn to love will become hostile to us. And so it's really opening up to the whole package. Yeah, there's, there's smallness in here. There's Donald Trump in here. I'm sorry to say. There's you know everything in here. And to hold up all those smallnesses as well and like a mother embracing a child with a tantrum, learning to hold it. Here's a very simple uh, exercise, self-compassion exercise. This is from Kristin Neff and Chris Germer, who uh, developed mindful self-compassion. Okay, very simple. When you're going through a hard time, you can try this. Close your eyes for a moment. And uh, in fact, you can think, you know, don't get into too too heavy a stuff, but, you know, for a moment, if you want to practice holding some feelings, uh, first, put your hand on your heart. Now, this physiologically releases oxytocin and stimulates the vagus nerve, the nerve of compassion. And just first feel that tender touch. And then the, the basic formula for mindful self-compassion, a few reflections, and you can do your own version of it. First is just acknowledging, oh, this is a moment of suffering, or this is hard right now. That in itself, you're moving from the limbic reactive part of the brain to the neocortex. Oh, this is hard. Second, oh, suffering is a part of life. And you might think of all the people in the world who are going through what you're going through right now. Whether it's sadness or fear or whatever, the millions and millions that you have company with 
and include yourself. Oh, suffering is part of life. And then the third reflection, may I hold my sorrow or my pain or my suffering with kindness and compassion. And let yourself feel that tenderness. And you are both the hurt little one inside that needs comforting and the wise one that can hold hold him too. And that's a kind of coming into wholeness. And if you did nothing else than just put your hand on your heart and feel that tender touch, uh, that would be good enough. So that's how one, for instance, can hold the misery or whatever else you're going through. Yep. Let's set the timer for Rick Hansen, 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Five more to go. <laughs> One thing I'll mention, uh, I just realized, I, as I often do, I'll, I'll just put out a, a list if you want to be told about uh, when the, the next course um, is. By the way, there's a suggested donation, but I don't keep anyone away. So finances, uh, I don't want to be an obstacle. And if you want to find out about the course or other things that I do, you can just uh, put your name and email on. And you said you'll stick around for questions? Yeah, I'll stick around for a while. Yeah. Uh, and he also has books for sale out there on the coffee table. Yeah. Any other Two. Yeah. I just want to give a big thanks to James. Yeah. Good to be with you. Thanks. Um, let's see. Next week is uh, in the version, in the newsletter, it says it's going to be an open discussion, but we flip flop because of the retreat. So next week will be Prasadachita Damachari, who's an, adorn, an ordained minister, member, excuse me, of the Tiratana Buddhist community, the one that lives upstairs. Um, Prasadachita teaches meditation, yoga, and Buddhism at the San Francisco Buddhist Center. His practice and teaching grows out of a value of friendship and community. He's interested in the Buddhist theories and poetic expressions that communicate links between lofty ideals and our ordinary life. He is also a photographer and aspiring filmmaker. That's going to be next week. Um, any other announcements? Yes. Yeah, I wanted to announce that uh, on Monday evenings, um, right in this room, is the uh, San Francisco LGBT Sangha. Same format as here, half hour sit. Only it's a half hour Dharma talk instead of an hour. And uh, it's been going on for about 16 and a half years. And it's a, a small group, mixed group, very diverse. So if uh, somebody wants to have another group meditation, back to back, Sunday and Monday, tomorrow night, 5.30. All right. Let's gather for the dedication. truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. 
may all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow, and may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in, in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.